If you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in the book of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 24 is going to be our, our text for this morning as we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the movie 13 Lives, the story, the harrowing story of a rescue mission is recounted as a soccer team in Thailand, a boys, 12 boys ages 11 to 16, and a coach uh, left practice one afternoon and they thought they were going to go on a couple hour hiking expedition that ended up into almost two weeks of being trapped in a cave. So they made their way into the cave. While they were in the cave, the heavens opened and the floods began to descend upon that part of Thailand and the entrance to the cave quickly became submerged in water and the, the soccer team was trapped. The Thailand Navy SEALs were called, called in. They're unable to locate the boys. The divers, uh, the, the turns through the cave were too tight to, and they weren't able to get to the, to, the, to the team. A group of British caving divers, one of them was in Thailand at the time, he called back to his friends in Britain. They flew out to Thailand and after several days of the Thailand government resisting letting these non-professionals rescue, they finally agreed because time was running out. Uh, the, 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 you know, the condition of the kids was uncertain. The, the future of being able to rescue the kids and reach the kids was uncertain. Would they be able to get to them in time or not? And so hope against hope, the Thailand government finally allowed these divers to go into that cave to see if they could, one, find the kids, and if they could, they would have to take extraordinary measures to, to take them back out. They'd have to swim through four kilometers of water. It takes about six hours. It would take about six hours to get through this. So they'd have to take extraordinary measures to, even if the kids were alive to be able to reach them. 2,000 years ago, there was another man entombed, not walled off by water, but body laid behind a, a stone in a cutout cave. And that morning before dawn, some of the faithful followers, some of his faithful followers went to that tomb not expecting life. Instead, they were there to embalm his body for a proper burial and for the process of decomposition. And yet what happened there, while they were there, they made four life-giving discoveries that changed their lives and those four life-giving discoveries change the lives of those who come to believe in what happened that morning. I want to read the story of Christ's resurrection from Luke chapter 24 this morning uh, to you as we consider what happened that Easter morning. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices that they had prepared and they went to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that, clothes 
that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fight, or in their fright rather, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the, over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all the, these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what happened. Well, let's consider this account of, of the resurrection morning. What were those four life-giving discoveries made by these first visitors, first witnesses to the empty tomb? Well, the first life-giving discovery is that the tomb was empty. We see this in the, the first three verses. Luke describes for us the details that as they got to the tomb, as they arrived to the tomb, the garden tomb, that they found that it, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. Now, that's Mark's account for it, or, or Luke's account for it, rather. Mark gives to us the questions that the ladies had that morning as they were making their way to the tomb, as they were journeying, walking from their homes to the tomb. They were asking themselves, how, how are we going to get into the tomb? Who's going to roll the stone away for us? How are we going to be able to embalm the body of Jesus? That was the question that was on their mind. John reports to us from the perspective of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was dismayed. She was distraught. When she walked into the tomb, she saw the tomb was empty. She imagined the worst, and she thought someone had stolen the body of Jesus, and so she fled the scene immediately, overwhelmed with emotion because of what she perceived had actually happened. Only Matthew tells us what happened that morning. Matthew chapter 28, verse 2, we read in Scripture that... Uh, Matthew says that there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going uh, came down from heaven and going to the tomb he rolled the stone he rolled back the stone and he sat on it. And so the that Matthew tells us what happened, that an angel had come down from heaven and had rolled the stone away. Now we understand this, you need to understand this, is that the angels rolled the stone away not to let Jesus out but to let the witnesses in, right? They need, we needed to see that the tomb was empty. We needed to know that Jesus wasn't there. And so the angels showed up and they, they rolled that stone away and the stone uh, allowed the stone, the tomb that once had been sealed and shut on Friday was now open and empty. Verses two and three describe for us the shock and the horror and the dismay that these early visitors, the first witnesses to the empty tomb, felt that morning. It doesn't take much to imagine what they felt as they walked into the tomb to realize that the one whom they had loved and followed for three years, the one to whom they set their hope, was no longer there. What happened to his body? The events that happened on Friday, which on Friday afternoon, they couldn't imagine anything becoming any worse than that on Friday afternoon. Suddenly now, 
was compounded in its disastrous effect as they realized that the body of Jesus was missing. The first life-giving discovery that the witnesses, the first witnesses to the resurrection made is that the tomb was empty. The second discovery was this, is that two angels suddenly appeared. Now that doesn't seem like a life-giving discovery, so let's unpack that a little bit so we can understand where is the life-giving discovery here. Verse 4 describes for us the emotional state of the women. It says that they walked into the tomb and they were wondering about this, wondering about the stone, how it was rolled away, wondering why the tomb was empty. Your Bible translation might say that they were perplexed. They were wondering, they were perplexed. This doesn't mean that the women had suddenly turned the empty tomb into a science lab and says, well, let's come up with some hypothetical reasons of what happened here. Let's draw a hypothesis of, of what happened here. No, it says when they were wondering, when they were perplexed, it is the idea of being overwhelmed with anxiety. We might say it this way, is that they were beside themselves. And certainly we can identify with what they felt and what they were experiencing that day. How could this have happened? The tomb on Friday was sealed, it was shut. Now it's open. The body is gone. Why would anyone want to steal the body of Jesus? And Luke tells us that in verse 5, suddenly two men in dazzling apparel appeared beside the women. Dazzling apparel. Not just white. Their apparel was bright. It was radiating light. It was, you know, the, the, the challenge that we have of when we're driving into the sunset or driving into the sunrise and the sun is just you know, coming up or going down and his brightness is in your eyes and you, you can't see. That's what it was like. This, these two appearance, two angels appeared to them suddenly in dazzling appearances, this radiating light from them. The unseen became seen in a moment's time. Scripture tells us in chapter, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are inheriting salvation. And so here we see that the unseen, were, uh, unseen angels were first sent to serve those followers of Jesus Christ by opening up their eyes to the unseen. The unseen became seen. First, the tomb was empty. Second, the unseen became seen. And third, notice with me that the res resurrection is essential to God's plan. We, the resurrection is essential to God's plan. We see this in verses 5 through 8 of, of Luke chapter 24. Do you remember when COVID was going on, we came up with that new word, essential workers? You guys remember that? Nobody wants to remember COVID, right? It's like a distant memory. It's like, let's just put that behind us. Well, let's bring it up one more time. Now nah, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> The resurrection was an essential worker to complete the plan of God's redemption for mankind. It was essential. The resurrection is essential to what, what God is doing. In, in verses 5 through 8, the, the angels begin to um, explain to the ladies, to those first witnesses at the tomb, why the resurrection is essential to the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption for mankind. 
Notice what they did. The first thing that they did in verse 5 is they began to ask them a question. They said, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? Those first witnesses to the tomb, they were guilty of misjudging what they saw. Without, without knowing all the facts, they judged that the empty tomb could only mean that someone had come in and stolen the body. And so they formed an assumption on what they saw and they, made, they drew the wrong conclusion. Have you ever taken a look at a situation, sized up the situation, and arrived at the wrong conclusion? Anybody with that? If you're married, you've done it, right? <laughs> I mean, it just happens, right, in marriage. We're all guilty of looking at something and coming, up, coming to the wrong conclusion. See, for them, they assumed that because they saw Jesus die on Friday afternoon and being laid to rest in that tomb, that somehow someone was able to get past the posted Roman guard. Maybe it was a conspiracy. What happened to the body of Jesus? Maybe it was the chief priests and the scribes who in their hatred went back to Pilate and said, no, nah, Jesus doesn't deserve a burial. Give us his body. We'll throw him in Gehenna, that place where the trash is burned and the corpse of, um, of convicted criminals are discarded. They misunderstood Jesus and were only able to see him dying on the cross. But in their minds, there was no room for a resurrection. Their Jesus was too small to fit into their belief system. Too small and could only be confined to a cave. Too human that they could not account for God doing the impossible. Why, the angels asked, are you looking for the living among the dead? This spoke, the living, this spoke to the, the essence of who Jesus Christ is, to his nature, that Jesus Christ is the living one. His resurrection would confirm the fact that Jesus Christ is not only the author of life, but he is the resurrection and the life. And I think as we come to Easter, the events of Easter, and we think of all that happened that you know, 2,000 years ago, it's not just that we recount something that happened 2,000 years ago. You and I, we need our, the eyes our eyes of faith open just as those first witnesses needed to have their eyes of faith opened. How often do we misjudge who Christ is and we think that by keeping him small we can keep him in our box or we think of him too poorly and we fail to account that he is the God who can do the impossible. Peter who was one of those witnesses who saw Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday morning, one of the first witnesses to the empty tomb that we saw in verse 12, we'll get to in a moment, would be inspired by the Holy Spirit to write in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I, I appreciate these words. And Peter writing to those first Christians there in the first century, but 
words that speak to us today. It says, though you have not seen him, that's you and I, though you and I have not seen Jesus Christ with our physical eyes, Peter writes, he says, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, that is, the salvation of your souls. Even though we don't see Christ now, now we believe that one day we will see him because he is alive. And so the first thing that the angels did to show that the resurrection is essential to God's plan is that the angels started by asking a question, why? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And second, verse Six, uh, yeah, verse six says uh, they remind him of they remind the, those first witnesses in verses six and seven of what Jesus had said to them while he was with them in Galilee. They remind him they, they remind the women rather of what Jesus had said to his followers concerning his own death and resurrection. You say, when did Jesus remind his followers that he would rise from the dead? Well, Matthew chapter sixteen, verse twenty-one. Jesus was in northern Galilee, in the city of uh, Caesarea Philippi, that pagan stronghold, that, that place that worshipped the, the, the place that worshipped the God of the, the Roman God of the underworld, Pan. It was there that Jesus told them and said, "I'm going to Jerusalem, where I will be crucified, I'll be put to death, and I will be raised on the third day." This is the place where Peter took Jesus aside and said. Lord, not so. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Matthew chapter 17. In Galilee, Jesus again spoke to his followers and he told them that he was going to Jerusalem where he would be delivered, crucified, and on the third day be raised to life. In Matthew chapter 20, when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he again speaks to his disciples and he says, listen, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and I will be condemned, I'll be delivered over to death and there I'll be mocked, flogged, crucified, buried. And on the third day, be raised to life. In essence, what the angels were doing that Sunday morning at the tomb they were reminding the women about what Jesus had told them. They were saying, remember? Remember what he said? Why are you here? I wonder if that would be a good question for us to ask ourselves. Not why are you here, but where do we look for life? Why are you here looking for the living among the dead? I want to come back to that question here in a minute. Put it in your mind for you just to begin to think about it. Verse 7, they began to explain. They explained how the resurrection is part of the essential part of God's plan for redemption. Look again at verse 7. Verse 7 says, the Son of Man must be. You see those two words, must be? It speaks of inevitability. It speaks of necessity. The events of that weekend, the death, the crucifixion, now the empty tomb, was the fulfillment 
of God's plan. And notice what they said there in verse 7. The first thing they said is that the Son of Man must first of all be delivered, that is, be turned over, betrayed, handed over. The betrayal and all that happened on Friday was part of God's plan of redemption. This must happen. Here we have a picture of the depth of our sin and the severity of our fallen human condition in which the author of life, the Son of God, was betrayed and handed over to death. Not only does the angel say that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, but he must be crucified. The Son of Man must be crucified. Literally, he must be driven down with stakes. In Galatians chapter 3, it's described here as being hung on a tree. And what happened there was Jesus Christ was hanging on the tree. Is Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. You see, more than just an execution and a horrific way of dying, Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross on Good Friday, something else was taking place. And that was Jesus Christ was becoming a curse for you and for me. Sometimes we'll say it in a cliche way that you know, Jesus Christ reversed the curse. But that is exactly what was happening. The curse that rightly fell to you and to me because of our sin. Jesus Christ bore that and became a curse. On Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was there praying, he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. There, those hours on the cross, Jesus Christ was drinking from that cup to the very last drop, the wrath of God against us for our sin. He became a curse. And yet, how do we know that that death was sufficient, that the death of Jesus Christ was unlike anyone else's death? How do we know that? How do we know that Jesus wasn't just a, a, you know, a madman who died a, a, you know, a crazy death? <laughs> the Son of Man must be delivered, must be crucified, and the Son of Man must be raised to life on the third day. You see, death could not keep Jesus. The tomb could not hold Jesus. Satan could not claim victory over Jesus. Why? Because God raised him to life on Easter Sunday morning. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, the verse that we used at our Good Friday service on, you know, a couple days ago. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says, He, Jesus, was delivered over, for, over to death for our sins. That as he was dying, he was dying for our sins, and he was raised to life, notice what it says, for our justification. He, came, he was raised by the Father to life, so that you and I might be justified. That word justified speak, as a legal term. It speaks of our standing before God, a holy God. And it means that this is how you and I can be made right with God. This, this is the hope of Easter. Regardless of who you are, what you've done, where you've been. You can be made right with God because Jesus Christ 
became a curse for you on Friday, was raised to life on Easter Sunday morning so that you might be justified before God. That's good news. Listen, you and I, we're not made right with God by, by, by uh, attending a self-help group, completing a sobriety co- uh, you know, course, the 12 steps. You and I are not made right with God by making a promise on Sunday morning and trying to keep it on Monday. You and I are made right with God only through faith in Jesus Christ who was put to death on Friday and raised to life on Easter Sunday morning. This is the meaning. This is the reason for the empty tomb. Nobody stole the body of Jesus. God raised his son to life. Those first witnesses, they didn't go to the wrong tomb. They didn't get it wrong and say, well, they just showed up in the wrong tomb thinking it was the the tomb of Jesus. No, no, they went to the right tomb. And Jesus wasn't there because God the Father raised him to life on the third day. I like verse 8. Verse 8 says, then they remembered his words. (laughs) They remembered his words. Ding, ding, ding. They started to put it together. They remembered. And so here we have, we come now to the fourth discovery. The first one is that the tomb was empty. The second one is the unseen became seen. And the third life-giving discovery was that the only credible explanation for what had happened at the empty tomb was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so finally, we come to the fourth life-giving discovery, and that is that the news seemed unbelievable. I mean, the, the women, they left the tomb. It was like sensory overload. I mean, could you imagine that scene? I mean, they're running from the tomb. They go back to the house where the 11 disciples are hanging out, and maybe they're asleep. Who knows what the guys were doing? Maybe they're trying to fix breakfast. And they're banging on the door. And so somebody finally opens the door, and these women, they spill into the room. Verse 10 tells us, who spilled into the room, right? These weren't just anonymous sources, like, well, somebody said this. Oh, no, Luke records for us who showed up at the door of where the 11 disciples were at, right? This was Mary Magdalene, the one who had seven demons inside of her cast out by Jesus Christ. There's this woman named Joanna. I say, who is Joanna? Luke chapter 8, verse 3 tells us that Joanna was married to a steward to a manager of King Herod. Remember King Herod? The guy that had John John the Baptist beheaded? Joanna was married to a man who served the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. I just, I read that and I think, you know what, here's the good news in that. The good news is that no one is beyond the reach of God. Sometimes we'll take a look at high and Mighty people, and we think, well, man, you know, they're beyond. No, oh, no. God is able to save anyone and everyone. And here, Joanna was one of those first witnesses to the empty tomb, the lady who was married to a man who worked for a wicked King Herod. There was Mary, the mother of um, John, or James, and there were others, and they reported the news, Jesus is alive. Banging on the door, door opens, they're spilling in. Because you imagine that, Jesus alive, Jesus alive. They can't believe we were there, the angels were there, and the, and the tomb was open, and nobody, we couldn't figure what was going on. Is it? 
And that's just one person. <laughs> Have you ever had somebody, and they're just talking, and they're going on and on, and go, blah, 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 blah. You ever had that? Are you sitting beside? No, I'm just kidding. Um, it wasn't like that for these guys. The Bible says that their words appear to them like nonsense. Like the fever, that word nonsense is the, the idea of, of the fevered speech of an insane person. I don't know if you've ever experienced the tragedy of a loved one experiencing insanity and there it's just doesn't make sense. They, they, there, there was nothing there that they, they, could, they, they, couldn't put the, they couldn't put it together. Have you ever been around men after they come back from a fishing trip? And they're telling us about the one that got away, right? This big! And they're telling the story. And, and you're thinking, it's impossible. I mean, it's just a pond. <laughs> or... We've probably said this words. We've certainly heard this words. Most of us have probably said these words. If it's too good to be true, it's... Oh, I guess you guys didn't say it. <laughs> well, I heard it this way in Canada. If it's too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. And I think that is what the disciples, that was going through their mind. It's, it's too good to be true. I like verse 12. Peter heard the news and the Bible says that he got up and ran. He didn't run to Starbucks. <laughs> he said, I'm going to head over to Dunkin' Donuts and grab me a donut. And I'll come back and we'll get to it eventually. No, it says he got up and ran. It says he got to the tomb and he saw for himself and he went in and he looked and he saw. He experienced it for himself. Verse 12 tells us that um, bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what happened. Wondering. The idea there is he was amazed, he was marveling at what he saw. Now, just imagine, let's just try to put ourselves in Peter's shoes for for uh, the past 72 hours. If you're familiar with the story of, of what happened, you know, that, that Thursday night, Jesus and Peter and the disciples were together and, 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 and Jesus said, you guys are gonna desert me and leave me and Peter boasts there in front of the whole group and says, listen, these guys might cut and run but I'm with you to the end. And before the rooster crowed in the morning, Jesus, Peter had denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. He cursed that he even knew him. And Peter found himself for 72 hours living in a world of what ifs and coulda, shoulda, and wouldas. And maybe you're here this morning and you're living in that cul-de-sac called what if. And your neighbors are coulda, shoulda, woulda. And that's where Peter was for 72 hours and he gets up 
And he runs to that tomb and he sees for himself that the tomb is empty. The strips of linen are lying there. And he leaves amazed. That word amazed is used in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. When the disciples were in the boat and Jesus was asleep and the storm came up and they were sinking and they woke up Jesus and said, Jesus, don't you care? We're going to drown out here. And Jesus gets up and he speaks to the wind and the waves and they stop. And the Bible says the disciples were amazed that even the wind and the waves obeyed him and they said, who is this man? Mark chapter 5 Verse 20, one of my favorite Bible stories in the gospel tells of Jesus going into this region called the Decapolis and, and there he met a man who was possessed by a legion of demons and, <clears throat> and Jesus cast the demons out of this man, this man who could not be restrained by chains or ropes. He was unclothed, unkept, out of his mind and then the next scene after Jesus delivers this man from the demonic, the, the demonic possession that had so gripped his life, the Bible says that he was there sitting, clothed, in his right mind, conversing, and the people were amazed. Peter's leaving this tomb going, could it be that Jesus is alive, that he is who he said he is? That is the question this morning. How do we respond to the resurrection this morning? These life-giving discoveries that were made at the tomb uh, 2,000 years ago, do they have any bearing on our lives? How will we respond to the truth that Jesus Christ is not in a tomb, but that he is today alive, ascended to heaven? What is our response to this? Let me try to answer this question, how we're going to respond to this, by, by considering two ways. I want to consider, first of all, the pursuit, and I want to go back to the question that the angels asked those first witnesses at the tomb. And then I want to end by looking at the promise, and then we'll be done. The pursuit. The question the angels asked us is, why are you here looking for the living among the dead? And we could ask that question for ourselves as, where do I go looking for life? Where do I go looking for life? Maybe for you, the choice has put you on a path called success. Life for me is success. If I can have a little bit more, if I can get ahead, if I can make it, if I can become financially secure and independent success, whatever that success is, that, that's, that's, the, that's, that's life for me. The bumper sticker, the model, the life philosophy on the bumper sticker, the one who has the most toys wins, has become your philosophy for life, has become your motto for life. Maybe for you, the path, the road that leads to life is the road called self-fulfillment. 
good times and good looking people. One more high, one more event, one more experience. This brings life. And yet, the scriptures tell us this, that if Jesus Christ uh, was not raised, that, that's the best philosophy. Live, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. But we know that Jesus Christ was raised, and so we have to take into account the fact that Christ is alive. Maybe for you, life is found in relationship status. The right guy, the right woman, the perfect family, grandchildren. And yet, if we're going to be honest this morning, all of us know that relationships cannot do what ultimately someone like Jesus Christ must do. All of these paths that we hop on for life leave us empty. Maybe you're here this morning and your pursuit for life, you've just said, I'm done. I've tried everything. Nothing works. In fact, maybe I would be, this world would be better off if I weren't even around. And I want to say to you this morning that Jesus Christ came. He was delivered. He was crucified and he was raised on the third day so that you might have life. Where am I looking for life? Where are you looking for life? What is the promise? The promise of Easter Sunday morning is simply this. Because Jesus lives, life will only be found in him. Because Jesus Christ lives, life will only be found in him. I think of what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse um, 18. Jesus said, I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. I hold the keys to both life and death, to the place of the dead. He's the source of the living one. As the living one, he is the source of life, rather. You know, I think of that movie where I started, The 13 Lives, Those British divers, they took extraordinary measures to rescue every one of those 12 soccer boys and their coach. And I'm here to tell you on Easter Sunday morning that Jesus Christ took extraordinary measures to rescue you, to rescue me.
He was delivered. He was crucified. And today he's alive because he was raised on the third day to give us life. 1 John chapter 2, if you're with us for our study in 1 John that we've just completed. 1 John chapter 2 verse 25 says, and this is what he promised us, eternal life. 1 John chapter 5 verse 11, John writes, he says, this is the testimony. John says, this is the testimony. He, John was there. He, he went to the empty tomb. He saw the empty tomb. He encountered the living Jesus for those 40 days that he was here on this earth before he ascended back to heaven. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is only in his Son. And so the question for each of us here today is how will you, how will I respond to the fact that Jesus Christ is alive? Maybe, <clears throat> how will you respond? I'll just stop right here. You and I, the way to have life the way to experience the life that Christ has promised and is found only in Jesus Christ is that you and I must repent of our sin. We must believe that Jesus Christ died. There is no other way. To repent, to turn from our sin, to believe, to put our complete trust in Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter three, verse 20 says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens up, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus Christ is offering to us life, eternal life, ongoing life, a life not of rules, religion, and, and, and rituals, but a life of relationship with him. And maybe this morning, this Easter morning, is you've never responded to Jesus Christ. Today, would you respond to him? Would you repent of your sin? Would you put your faith in the fact that Jesus Christ died, was raised, and is alive? The Bible calls that being born again. Maybe you're here. You've heard this before, and there was a time when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet today you find yourself, you've walked away. You find yourself being like the person who says, yeah, give me $3 of Jesus. I, I want enough of Jesus to, to take away my guilt and get me into heaven, but not enough of Jesus to take, to, to take charge of my life. And this morning, Christ is offering, inviting us, calling us into a relationship with him where we walk with him. And maybe today you need to turn from trying to find life in one of these other paths, thinking I can go my own way and I don't have to follow Jesus and today he's calling you on Easter Sunday morning to give that up and to follow him. Will you do that? Will you respond to him today?